May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. Today's Hebrew Bible text is from the prophet Micah. Micah was one of the 8th century prophets of Israel, contemporary with Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. His name, Micah, is actually three Hebrew words slammed together. Who is like Yahweh? Mika, it says. What we know about Micah is he was apparently from a small village outside of Jerusalem. Much of his prophecy is very uncomfortable and angry with those who think they have it made, who worship wonderful, great, powerful ways, bringing huge sacrifices. Micah liked none of that. In your bulletin, you will see a translation which is quite traditional of this passage, a very famous passage, of course, um, from the New Revised Standard Version. Let me if you don't mind, and whether you mind or not, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to give you my own translation of this passage, and it will be somewhat different, as you no doubt will hear. Listen to what Yahweh is saying. Rise and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, and you far reaches of the earth, to Yahweh's indictment. Yes, Yahweh has an indictment against the chosen people. God will bring Israel to trial. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, freed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember how King Balak of Moab schemed and how Balaam answered him from Shittim to Gilgal in order that you could know the righteous actions of Yahweh. But with what shall I approach Yahweh, bowed before the high God? Shall I approach with whole burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will Yahweh be happy with thousands of rams, with vast rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my evil, my body's fruit for my life's wickedness? God has told you, you mortal one, what is right. What does Yahweh ask of you? Only to do justice, to embrace the fierce love of Yahweh, and to walk readily and continuously with your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians. We're continuing a set of readings in these first chapters of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We remember that Paul is sharing with us correspondence. One side of a conversation is he speaks to a church trying to navigate how to be the body of Christ in the midst of a complex and diverse city like Corinth, where people came to trade from far away as he brings the traditions of his Jewish upbringing and that of Jesus into the context of the Greek world there in Corinth. They are struggling with things we continue to struggle with today about how to be the church, how to make sense of Christ, and how to let the cross guide us. We begin with a small overlap of last week's reading. You may recognize this first verse. It was the conclusion of last week's reading and our beginning point for today. I invite you to listen for the word of God. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Oh, holy God, I pray that 
my words and our thoughts and our lives would reflect the fullness and beauty of your grace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I'm grateful to be able to share these incredible texts this morning. Not only Paul's letter to the church in Corinth and some words from John Wesley, but those beautiful verses from the prophet Micah. And grateful for your translation. That was fierce. That translation of uh, to love kindness into embrace, what did you say, the fierce love of God? To embrace the fierce love of God. And those words, of course, are etched in the steps up to our church building. Uh, so perhaps you walk over them on Sunday on your way into church, especially if you come from the sidewalk. Uh, I think of how they remind us of what we're called to be. And the necessity of being reminded over and over again of what we're called to be. There is temptation always, especially as we start to figure a few things out, as we come to believe the depth of God's love for us and our capacity to hold and share grace. There's a temptation that pulls at us to be a little smug in the way that we've got it figured out. And in a building as beautiful as this one, in a location as spectacular as our church location, we have to walk over those steps every week to remind ourselves again and again that what we're called to is not to beauty and power by worldly standards, but to faithfulness that does justice, that embraces the fierce love of God, and that walks continually, something like this, over and over every day with God, that claims our position and posture in humble connection and relationship to the God of all creation who guides our ways. The call of discipleship is to that ongoing journey. That ongoing journey that's essential to our understanding of Christian faith was certainly at the heart of what John Wesley was trying to convey when he, with other early Methodists, sought to articulate over and over again exactly what it was that he meant by this wild idea they called Christian perfection. I said this the other week also, but I want to remind you that Wesley's teachings of Christian perfection have been collected in a small volume that is titled A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. And what you find in there is an ongoing dialogue over decades as he sought to clarify and correct and better describe what it was that he meant. An idea that has a simple title but continually faces misunderstanding because it pushes against the assumptions of our world, of our culture, of what it means to be people who claim power in this world. John Wesley, like the Apostle Paul in his words to the church in Corinth, was trying to encourage us, the church, to embrace a very different way of being, of claiming power that is not power in the conventional sense, is not wisdom in the ways we normally understand wisdom, but instead looks like foolishness to the wise and is crucifixion on a cross in the face of power. 
Our faith turns on these radical re-understandings of what it is that we're striving after that lifts up and embraces our ability to people who seek after and labor for justice, who embrace the fierce love of God and who walk continually from day to day in relationship with a God who guides and directs us. For John Wesley, so much of this journey, this journey of becoming people who are able to live like God desires for us to live, he called this Christian perfection, which was not perfectionism. And it's important that we understand that this is not asking us to be flawless humans, but instead is an invitation to let ourselves be able to love perfectly, to let ourselves continually live toward love. And I think Wesley was also wanting to help us name and understand that as we try that, it gets easier. We get better at it. When we offer forgiveness and grace, one time it changes who we are and makes it easier the next time so that we are changed, perfected, if you will, in our ability to embody love, to embrace the fierce love of God. Uh, But John Wesley wanted to clarify that this was not perfectionism he was talking about. And the expectation is that we humans would continue to exhibit the flaws we always exhibit. In part, this is important for honoring and recognizing our humility in the face of God. We are mortal creatures who will always get some things wrong. And his teaching about the importance of recognizing that we will always labor to love with flaws is important because there are so many ways that we use imperfections, flaws, mistakes, as an opportunity to disempower the one who's made a mistake, to re-rank ourselves in community with one another, positioning some of us ahead of others of us. This this theme is clear in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and it's certainly clear in John Wesley's teaching. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he describes how few of the people possess all of the gifts. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. As we hear that today, it comes as a word of grace. Not all of us were at the top of our class, Not all of us got the positions of honor. Not all of us were born into power. Not many of us, if we use Paul's language. It's an invitation not only to remember that it's not only the people who look powerful by the standards of the world who have something to contribute, but that we fall short if we assume that it would be so. If we assume that we, because of our privilege, have more to offer or that we, because of our lack of privilege, have nothing to contribute. Paul is pushing against that, and Wesley picks up that theme as he urges the church to re-understand Christian perfection and be specific in how it is that we listen to one another. As Wesley writes in his plain account of Christian perfection, he describes in what sense we're not perfect. He says, Christians are not perfect in knowledge, They're not free from ignorance nor from mistake. 
We are no more to expect any living man to be infallible than to be omniscient. They're not free from infirmities, such as weakness or slowness of understanding, irregular quickness or heaviness of imagination. I find these phrases sort of fascinating. I don't often think about my heavy imagination or irregular quickness. But as he continues, these words hit home. He says, such and another kind are impropriety of language, ungracefulness of pronunciation. As Wesley speaks these words about not letting our ungracefulness of pronunciation disqualify us from being people who embody Christian perfection, I hear him pushing against class structures that left some in his English context with a much more elevated style of language and others speaking in a common language that we could be quick to judge as coming with ignorance or a lack of wisdom. As Wesley offers these words and as we read them today, we're aware that in our own time, there are so many markers we use to judge people even before they've said anything. Markers of appearance and style and language and context that we are called in Christ to hear as siblings who possess wisdom we are in need of, but who we in the church are tempted to label as imperfect because of their, as Wesley called it, ungracefulness of pronunciation and impropriety of language. Of course, as a preacher, I'm grateful for any slack that Wesley wants to give about ungraceful pronunciation. Uh, Whenever I'm speaking to anyone else, I replay in my mind over and over the times when I tripped up on the words or got them tangled or wrong. It's a bit of grace for all of us who know that we're never going to get it all right. It's not going to come together clearly or easily. But even more than that, Wesley is pushing against our classism and our racism and all of the oppressions that we use to judge and exclude. People who don't speak English as a first language or know the right phrasing, too often these things are used as excuses for devaluing the contributions and voice of our neighbors and siblings in the church. And so we're invited this morning as we read Paul's words about the church in Corinth and Wesley's teachings to continue that legacy, to be a community that continues to stand up, to say we believe that there are contributions that we need in order to see and describe God more clearly that require us listening carefully to voices that speak differently than the language or lexicon that we might be most comfortable in. We're commanded to listen, expected to hear, in voices different from our own, a contribution of the gospel. This pushes us to a finer way of being the church that may look foolish to those watching from the outside, but draws us closer, closer to the fullness of the revelation of divine love that God intends for us. There's further foolishness embedded in the teachings that Paul offers to the church in Corinth and John Wesley gives to those early Methodists that points us to be people who look strange in the eyes of the world. 
because the kind of power that we seek after is the power of the cross, the power of a love that submits to death for the sake of us all, for the sake of the world, and especially those who've been pushed to the edge and cast out of the community. The power of the cross is the power of giving up, not of pulling together and accumulating for ourselves. The power of the cross invites us to be people who see and acknowledge and honor and share in solidarity with those who are experiencing suffering. This last week, I have again and again been reminded of the painful reality of the devastation of gun violence in our communities here in California as we grieve the tremendous violence in Monterey Park and in Half Moon Bay and in Benedict Canyon just in this last week. Such different examples of the devastating power that we possess to destroy life a stunning need that crosses language and culture and economic context that we have to find a different way forward apart from violence and one that does not allow the harmful, devastating, life-stealing power of gun violence in our communities. My heart is broken open as I think of the grief brought on by these acts of mass casualty, of mass shootings. But I know that violence continues in our communities from day to day. And that not only gun violence, but domestic violence and violence against neighbors is a part of so many of the stories of our families and communities. And in the face of an awareness and visible showing of this kind of violence, we hear the words of the prophet Micah speaking out loudly to us that what we religious people need to do is not make fancy offerings, but to break open our hearts, to do the work of justice, and to embrace the fierce love of God, and to walk day to day in relationship with God. And doing so necessarily changes our posture and our position. It changes how we see our neighbors and our enemies. It forces us into a different way of being, not religious as a surface addition to our lives, but the kind of religion that runs deep, that changes who we are from the inside, that demands all of who we are. This kind of religion is possible because we honor a God who took on human form and suffered and died on a cross, whose suffering gives us assurance that there is nothing we endure in this world that God has not shared and God will be present with us in the struggle. So then the goal of our religiousness can't be to just get ourselves out of the mess. It has to be to get the world out of the mess that we're in, to sit with our neighbors in the midst of the struggle and the devastation and to find a better way. And of course, this week, I've been gripped not only by the reality of violence in mass shootings like those in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay and even Benedict Canyon here in our own neighborhood, but the realities of police violence against black bodies in the searing stories coming out of Memphis of the death of Tyree Nichols, we see and see clearly a system that devalues bodies and lives, that perpetuates violence, 
that cannot be corrected even by putting black officers into the roles of the police. We hear a necessary call to be people who stand up and stand with the bodies and lives of those who are under threat of violence, those who are most at risk in our communities. The gospel calls us to be people who are present for and with one another. And the power of the cross is the power to be people who in moments of suffering see our belonging and believe in a God whose grace is even bigger. This is the call of the gospel, to dare to believe in a power that's greater than death, that to be a good Christian isn't just to look nice, isn't maybe ever to look nice, but is to belong for and with one another in a chosen solidarity that puts us together, that allows us to claim one another as siblings, as members together in the very same body. I've been reading again the wisdom of Julian of Norwich, a mystic who wrote in 14th century England, but whose experience of divine love speaks into our world even today. Mirabai Starr has released a new translation updating Julian's English into contemporary English. She speaks of her mystical encounter of Christ on the cross. As Julian was experiencing a near-death moment, as she struggled with disease, she had a vision of Christ coming to her, speaking to her in suffering. And here is what she heard. Then I saw that every impulse of loving compassion we have toward our fellow human beings is the Christ in us. And every kind of humiliation he suffered in his passion is revealed in our compassion. She continues, he wants us to know that all our pain will be transformed into blessings and honor by virtue of his passion. He wants us to realize that we never suffer alone, but always together with him and to rest in him as our foundation. He wants us to see that his pains and his tribulations so far exceed our greatest suffering that no one can fully grasp it. And this is the good news. The good news is that Christ is with us in it all. Christ comes to us, transforming us, inviting us to belong in this fierce love that overcomes even death. When we let that become a deep part of who we are, set into our bones and our lives and our moments and our days, knit into the fabric of how we live in this world, shaping us in an image of what Wesley called Christian perfection, in the life lived continuously toward love, in a faithfulness that embodies this full and deep grace. This is our glory, our sanctification, our blessing, an invitation to participate in a love that is greater than everything. In just a moment, our choir's our choir is going to sing a song set that borrows verses from Song of Songs. It was written by Nick Strimple, who's with us here today. These verses from Song of Songs speak of the depth of love that is set as a seal on our hearts, that is knit into our bodies, that becomes a part of the fabric of who we are. This is the invitation of the gospel 
to be people into whom love has been so deeply knit that we can do nothing but justice. We can do nothing but embrace the fierce love of God and walk continually from day to day in relationship with a God who guides us toward love. May it be so. Amen.